Oh, yeah. Let's get this party started up in here. Whoop, whoop. Hey, this is Mark. You're listening to this show probably on your mobile device, whether it's iOS or Android or even Windows Mobile. <laughs> Who has one of those? Uh, but anyway, you're probably listening, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher or some other wonderful mobile app that brings this amazingly awesome show to your ear holes. Yeah. But did you also know that you can find this show, among several others in this category, at the Tangent Bound Network? That's right. Go visit TangentBoundNetwork.com. Check it out where you can always get the latest episode of this and other shows quite like it. Although, admittedly, there is no show quite like this one. Sword of Omens, come to my hand. I, Lionel, command it. I also command that you keep listening to Adrian Has Issues. Hey guys, welcome to Adrian Has Issues. I'm Adrian, and today I have a very awesome guest with me. And I, I feel kind of proud, though. This is the first time I've spoken to someone uh, directly in the UK, so I feel proud that I'm finally starting to get a handle on how time zones work, because, you know, living on the East Coast of the US, you kind of just assume everybody works on your time. <laughs> I've got the same problem over here. I just think everybody works on UK time, and uh, forgetting that uh, the whole world doesn't revolve around us. Oh, you know what? I don't feel so bad now. I always just assume that it's like a, this entitled American thing that I do, so I I don't know maybe we're both terrible but part of me kind of feels a little bit better about that uh, there you go i hope i made you feel a, a tiny bit better <laughs> my guess who you just heard is a comic book writer and he's worked on some things as uh ex mortis which if i'm not mistaken is a 451 title that's correct and you've worked on a lot of stuff like blue spear and you've also done uh some one shots for some video game related properties which is pretty awesome yeah i worked on just cause three for square enix and and also Dark Souls 2 for Bandai. And you uh, just recently released Overrun, which I was just reading today. And I want to talk a lot about that because it's such a wacky book. But without further ado, please welcome my guest, Andy Ewington. Andy, how's it going, man? Yeah, really good. Thank you. Uh, pleasure to be on. I had heard your name pop up. Matter of fact, I had an interview with Stephen Francis and James Emmett, uh, 451, and we we're talking through a couple of titles, and Ex Mortis was one of the ones that we spoke about, and it was a really awesome book, and of course, after reading that, it's like, oh, I gotta follow this guy on Twitter. He's, he's got some really awesome ideas. And then you had once tweeted a couple of screenshots from your book, Overrun, and I was just like, look, I just need to have you on a show because... This just looks out of this world. So I guess we should just get into it. Sure. Tell everybody like a quick rundown of what Overrun is about. In the simplest form, it is Tron of the Dead. <laughs> um, I, I think that that's as small as I can break it down. You have a bunch of forgotten computer game characters that are drawn out of retirement to save the day inside a computer that's been threatened by a virus. It starts out, it's like a really cool cyberpunk thriller. But then I love just how you were able to break down standard computer jargon and make it into a way where it was almost... 
I don't want to say it was necessarily like a spoof, but it was really kind of fun how you took certain ideas of the internet or of just technology in general. Like, I mean, I don't want to necessarily give away too much of the story, but um, sure. but basically you're they're walking through what's essentially like the red light district, and they're just people on like the side of the street, basically hawking for like enlargement pills or you know video cam sessions. And, yeah, Viagra and stuff. Yeah, we, I've got a bit of a warped sense of humor, which helps i I came across this idea that what if we tried to really make the computer itself like our world and that got me thinking about things like jpegs and you know mp4s and mp3 files and things like that and what would they physically look like if they were if they were us not to the level that the matrix did it right um more more sort of a little bit tongue-in-cheek very sort of visual so you know, JPEGs generally wear T-shirts with the picture that of the, the the image that they are, and music files will be wearing headphones and dressing the style of the music that they're listening to. Um, and this then started to build up and build up. And once I had sort of the framework of the world all set out, the language then sort of began to follow. So I said, right, okay, you know, trash cans, you know, were literally dumpsters. And once you, those rules were in place, it was very easy to go, well, okay, a port could be somewhere where a ship comes in, emails would come in on a, a, a train system, train network. I just then began to build a, a real world out of these computer bits and jargons. I love the spam. I thought it was a really, really novel idea. <laughs> yeah. And obviously we've got our two sort of detectives that are, are, are sort of going around trying to solve this sort of, I guess it's a sort of a mystery come who done it where's it all coming from who's the bad guy type of thing called norton and mcafee who are sort of security homeland security files that are uh, trying to save the day as well they're, they're sort of the the b-list heroes that are sort of in the background yeah and i always thought those two characters were really cool which i did notice that you had a brief teaser of those two characters you're revisiting in like a spin-off series yeah, I would love to. I mean, as with everything within the comic industry, it all comes down to money. Right. And Overrun was self-funded through working with Matt Woodley, my co-writer on it. He stumped up all the cash. So it becomes something that's very sort of cost prohibitive. And we need to make sure that there's collateral there. We've got to hope that people buy into it, allows us the, the, the funds to, to go out and play again. So what would you say is your biggest influence and the driving force behind creating Overrun? I would say a, a huge amount of computer game play. Computer games have been sort of a big part of me growing up, going back to sort of having the first Ataris. Uh, I had all of the systems sort of just at home from like BBCs and, and Sega Mega Drives all the way through up to my PlayStation 4 that I've got now. Along with that, I, I fought rather fortuitously got into um, the computer game industry, designing, packaging, and advertising. Uh, and Matt as well, who who worked at Domark at the time. Uh, oh, wow. That got then taken over by IDOS, and IDOS then got taken over by Square Enix. So between us, we've probably got 50, 55 years' worth of computer game experience. And that's not, not just playing games, that's being part of the marketing you know, you know, we both worked on things like Championship Manager 2, 
I've worked on Just Cause 3, obviously with the comic. Uh, I've worked on a lot of the Final Fantasy titles. You know, there's been a huge amount of titles that I've worked on over the years. And Matt's exactly the same. So we've got a big love for computer games and we are, you know, we like to think we, we really understand them. You are a fan of video games, but then working on the other end of things, does that sort of change your perspective on games? Like knowing sort of the behind the scenes stuff, does that also affect how you now play them? Or is it just kind of like two things that you're able to separate? I'd like to think I can separate them. I'm not as close to it as Matt used to be. Matt would be very much the client to me because I would be working in the agency. And so we would be servicing the likes of EA and GT Interactive at the time when they were there, Atari and Bandai. So they were, we were always very excited when games came in. And we never really got to see all the dev work or um, very little the surface. And everything would be good and everything would be great. You're never knowingly told that there's a problem with a game. You know, there have been games in the past that, you know, have been built up, built up and, and then fail. Um, right. And that happens. But working with clients, you tend not to be told that it's going to, you know, they've got bad vibes for this game or anything. Everything is really positive. So you're always channeling your energy into the marketing ideas, the advertising ideas based on a game that you've been told is going to be brilliant. So, you know, you do your best to sell that. Matt probably is somebody that is on the inside or was on the inside, would probably know when a game is it, where it sits and how it's going to be received. And he's probably, you know, got the unenviable position where, you know, he may have to work on games that or in the past that weren't going to succeed. For me, I'm quite lucky that um, I've always been quite positive and always been able to separate the two. Um, I can't speak for Matt, but um, <laughs> I'd imagine that he he probably had it a lot tougher. Um, you know, he would have to play very much poker faces with people um, if a game wasn't going to sort of deliver as he hoped. I always felt like that's tough because there's a thing that you're into and then working in the industry kind of necessarily skews your opinion and not necessarily in an overly negative way, but it's like the idea of being a movie buff, but then maybe working at a movie theater, then it's like, you know, you see movies all day. Once you see kind of all the wires in between, it becomes a little less, uh, I don't know, special. You lose the magic. Yeah, I kind of get that. It's like being a graphic designer. We're the world's worst to design for ourselves. Seriously, the amount of times that we've had to do some self-promotion for our own like companies and you sit there and scratching your head going, what are we going to do? <laughs> you know, you're coming up with the like, really ridiculous ideas and you just can never quite get it. But if it's uh, a brief that's come in from a client, you know that you're going to do a really, really good job. It's just it's just weird. You're just sometimes a little bit too close to things. But on the computer game side, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that there was that level of client-customer relationship that acted as a barrier between us. Right. I mean, granted, you did say yourself that you pretty much grew up with almost every console. And as somebody who basically has moved a lot, I couldn't realize most of my stuff is game consoles. Like the other day, like I'm just teetering with the stack of boxes and it's all like, you know, Dreamcast, and like PlayStation 2 and, you know, Super Nintendo. And you're saying to yourself, it's like, you know what? At this point, like, it's almost like being a hoarder just for video games because I don't throw out anything. So, <laughs> no, I would be the same. I actually, um, I'm a big one as well for all the game books, like the Choose Your Own Adventure books. Um, so, and also the sort of retro board games. I'm a big fan and, and big collector of those as well. And I, I had all of this stuff. And I know that they were at my mum's house and I know that they even got passed on to charity and everything because I kind of 
disappeared from them when I sort of found a wife or a girlfriend, <laughs> wife, house, you know, all of that thing. And then you suddenly get that nostalgic moment and you go, oh, all that stuff. Yeah, it's my mum's. And then you go around there and then she says, no, I chucked it out years ago. And you're sitting there going, no. I had a whole heap of Star Wars um, figurines. I had the Attack Walker, Scout Walker. I had the, all the, the two different ice bases. I had, oh, no. I had all of it. I mean, literally everything bar probably the, do you remember the cardboard Death Star? Yes. That was the only thing that I didn't have pretty much. Everything else I was thoroughly spoiled by my parents and, and had all of this. And I, my mum sold it for 20 quid, which is what, $35? I'm a little fuzzy with my exchange rates, but I think that sounds about right. Even now, it just brings a tear to my eye. Well, I will mention it to her now and again when I really need to stick the, the knife in and make it a, the guilt. <laughs> um, the guilt. Oh, man. And I feel your pain. I want to say maybe 2008, I ended up moving to my own place and I had boxes of, and it was stuff that I played with. It wasn't even in original casings because by the time I got to the Star Wars toys, it was mostly like the, was it they call it the Power of the Force, like the re-release stuff. Yep. But still, it's like, you know, this was stuff that I had for years and, you know, it's not cheap necessarily, but I'm thinking to myself, you know what? A lot of this stuff, all these action figures and toys that I had, no one's going to want to use this stuff. So I basically carted them off and didn't think anything of it. And then as I get a little bit older, all of a sudden everything new became old and all these toys I see at like conventions or like even some video games, not too many, but they're on shelves and they're going for all this money. And like, I had those, even if I didn't keep them, I could have probably sold them and maybe funded like, I don't know, college or something. Yeah. It's, 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 it's shocking. I mean, I had the die cast Thunderbird two, which had the little yellow Thunderbird four inside that you could flip out all of this. stuff. It got smashed up, all just chucked in boxes and chipped and everything. And I'm just looking at going, what did I do? Where did I go wrong? Why didn't I foresee that all this <laughs> stuff was going to be? And obviously now, because I've got a, um, a little boy and a little girl, I'm like, when they're getting something, I'm going, that's going in the box. <laughs> I've got a, like a die cast DeLorean from Back to the Future that I got back in 2000 something. But I got, he's got one and I've got one boxed and I will, it, it, it's not opened and I will keep it and it will probably be worth about five quid. fifty or something um in about 50 years time it's just it's just too late i think those days are gone because it was early merchandising you know star wars was one of the first that you know really got it right right Uh, i think it's really hard to to sort of get back to that that sort of collectible where stuff's really really sort of rare and valuable now i think everything's so mass produced they'll hold their value a lot easier than um, say like an original darth vader with the old lightsaber that was in the hand that would probably worth like 10 times as much now yeah and that's really the worst of it and a matter of fact you said it exactly because i was going to say the same thing that because certain things ended up being worth so much money, I don't know why companies then figured the more you make it, you know, the figure will just make more quantities of things. But, you know, look at comic books. I mean, back in the early 90s, which was roughly around the time I started reading comics, even I remember just how crazy it was where books, you know, had all these special editions. There'd be like foil covers. There'd be, you know, all these things that I guess were trying to drive up the collector value of it. But then so many of those books were made 
then fast forward like another couple of years, all those books that my dad bought for me that were meant to be like these really special books, like you find in quarter bins now. Like I remember my dad was on vacation and he got me a copy of Thunderstrike number one uh, from Marvel and it had the foil cover and it's like, you know, the really cool backing on it. And he used to be like, you know, take care of this because this is going to be really special one day. And then, you know, fast forward, like, 15 years later, I'm in 50-cent bins in my local comic shop seeing that same foil cover, and I almost wanted to buy one to show my dad. It's like, look how much this is worth. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you yelled at me to keep this book safe, which I didn't because I was an idiot, but now yeah. it's like, <laughs> was it well, worth it? Well, you buy another one now for, like, $5 and go, oh, no, I really did keep it all okay. Look, here it still is. <laughs> right, and watch what happens. I don't know, maybe a new movie will come out and don't make a reference to Thunderstrike and he gets strangely popular. And now that yeah. book that's in the 50 cent bins will now be going for like 500 bucks. Well, I'm, I'm seeing it with Oberon, weirdly. Um, we only did the miniseries itself. Right. We only did 250, 300 copies. So, you know, that's it in the world. <laughs> I'm not doing any more, not unless somebody comes along and takes it off me. Um, <laughs> The, the promo which we did in 2014, we did we did a thousand of those, I think. They're on eBay for like thirty to sixty quid, which is you know seventy five, ninety dollars. Which considering it's um, a comic that you could have bought for God, I think we were selling it for five five pounds. You know the markup on that is enormous, and it's the same for the, the actual mini series itself, which is now complete. You know the four issue, right? could probably buy that set for 20 pounds which is what 25 27 dollars and they're selling for double that at the moment i think i've seen it what with delivery i can only see it going up really because it's really going to be hard to get hold of right but at one end i can imagine there's probably a part of you that's like hey you know this book that i made clearly you know it's not that you're like oh hey look at it going for this much maybe there's a little bit of pride there saying hey people are willing to spend as much money on one of my books but i know there's definitely that back and forth with comic book creators and also the secondary market because you know ebay you know it let's be honest it can be a little problematic for some especially who create comics that then have them or you know create work and then it just gets flipped so i can imagine it's got to be a little odd or maybe at least just a little interesting to see a book that you did kind of go fetch that kind of price point. It is a, a sort of a yin-yang because you're sitting there going, I only made about 200 quid on this, you know, in total, <laughs> you know, not much. You're sitting there go, watching it, somebody else selling it, probably one comic or two comics that, that eclipse your profit in, in next to no time. And you're going, surely that's us about face. Maybe I, I should be the one making more money and somebody else's. Right. But me, I just want it out there and hoping that enough people like it. And, and it's not about the money. It's about the money to help fund the next thing. That That's where it's important to me. I'm not sort of going to sit there and think to myself, great, now I've got X amount. I can buy myself a Ferrari. Yeah, I might be able to buy one of those little die-cast Ferraris that we would <laughs> Some of those go for about the same amount of money, I've noticed. Yeah, this will be a mass-produced one, I'm sure, from China or something that, you know, you're looking at it going, no, this is, this is rubbish. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 it won't be a real collector's one, that's for sure. But, you know, it is, it is flattering and you get a little bit of buzz out of it, but equally you're sitting there going, yeah, I just wish somebody else would actually buy it, you know, rather than sitting on eBay for an inflated price. 
Right. I would just rather it go to somebody who would really appreciate it. And obviously, if you make money off of it, whether, you know, like you said, if that is only to just fund the next project, I mean, it's still important. You know, there aren't too many superstars in comics. So a lot of them are really just putting out hard work. And, you know, it, it's the it's a very expensive hobby. And it's also a very expensive job for those who are on the creator side of things. So, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I had to on my first um, graphic novel 45 which I got published in 2010 I had to sink about six and a half thousand pounds into that wow to pay for the art and that doesn't include the, the time that was spent in it as well so I think finally after last year I probably broke even off of it finally just about but that's with other things in play with it so it it wasn't just on the print alone so it's it's a hard thing you know to really make money and it's a little bit of a, I don't want to say thankless. It, it, I don't, you can see people sometimes moan about prices of comics. And if you actually stopped for a moment and realize how much work goes into that, that you're paying maybe the price of a cup of coffee for. Right. It just sometimes you just got to take your hat off and go, actually, somebody spent, I don't know, two months writing this, a month and a half writing it. Somebody's spent 10 weeks illustrating this. Somebody's been lettering this. Somebody's been coloring it. Somebody's been designing it, you know, putting it all together. It's a lot of lot of time and a lot of effort. Yeah, I just think sometimes people forget how much actual work actually goes in. It's very easy to be quite negative about comics, and sometimes you just got to sit back and go, actually, hats off. They got they got a comic out, and you know, not a lot of people can say that. And so credit where credit's due, I suppose. Absolutely, and for once, I'm guilty of that as well. You notice the prices are definitely not what they were, but then you realize. Wow, you know, how much of an entitled brat am I? I'm complaining about the price point when I'll drop about the same amount of money for something that's probably far less valuable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, I think that I understand it because you're buying, you're investing money that you've earned into something that you want to be entertained with. And it's like going to the cinema and watching a bad movie. You know, you're only going to have bad things for it. Yep. Stuff like that happens, you know, and somebody else will find enjoyment from it. I haven't seen it yet, but I guess Batman versus Superman is going to be one of those type of movies where, oh yeah, you know, <laughs> like I said, I've not seen it. So I'm, I'm, it's going to be very hard for me to pass judgment, but you can see the sort of the love hate relationship that people and fans have got it with it. Yet you've got to imagine the amount of hours that people have poured into that. And if they wouldn't have done it, you know, nonchalantly, they wouldn't have done it, you know, without, the fans sort of first and foremost, and they've got to be answering also to the production company and the distributor and the publisher and all of that sort of thing. There's a lot of egos that have got to be pleased. Right. And it's not just down to the, to the director or the actor. So yeah, I, I try to be a little bit more forgiving these days. This is stuff that I didn't really think about until I started podcasting and talking to other creators. Cause you know, you take for granted the fact that it's now April and you know, next month, you know, the book, whatever book you're into is going to be out on the shelf. And I'm not going to lie. I've had times where there have been books that have been severely delayed, which, you know, like let's say with Secret Wars, which has kind of been notorious for that. And I still kind of make comments about it, but at the same time, I'm like, you know what? That book, you know, there was a lot of really intricate artwork, and it, it's not surprising why it got delayed. So, again, I guess for anybody who's listening who creates comics, if they've heard me gripe about it, I kind of apologize. <laughs> <laughs> I think the other thing is also, having worked 
in, you know, solidly, especially um, the likes of, of 451, people have lives and people have normal problems just as much as everybody else does. You know, creators are not immune from illness, family mishaps, an accident, computer going down, anything like that that happens to everybody else. And I guess we don't really see or hear that because we tend to get sheltered from disaster scenarios because it, you know, portrays a, uh, a bad image. Right. Some of it could be personal. You know, if something slipped, you know, my first thought would be, you know, it's not for the lack of trying. Um, there, there could be a, a real justified reason. You know, somebody's mother could have died, you know, and that's like two weeks off. The schedule is going to be all thrown out of kilt. Now, I, I guess I'm in my forties, heading towards my mid forties. You kind of just chill with it a little bit more than, than get so sort of, oh, why isn't it out? Why isn't it out? <laughs> um, they're doing it to punish me. So I just try, try to take a chill pill in it these days. <laughs> with that comes a little bit of wisdom. I mean, you've been in the industry for quite some time. So over time, you realize that a lot of things that, not that they don't matter, but yet they're not necessarily things that you can really afford to stress out about when, you know, life just happens. Yeah. Exactly. And life will just, it's one thing for sure. Life will just happen. <laughs> and, you know, things will get thrown up and spanners will be put into uh, machinery. So you just have to sort of, you know, pick yourself up and, you know, dust yourself down, hold your hands up, sometimes come clean when you have to, uh, you feel it's necessary. And, um, you know, I'm sure people will be understanding and forgiving in time. If I may, I have to fan out for a little bit here, because before we even think about ending the show, I have to say that Sunflower is so damn good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a fun one. Um, you know, I've I recently watched um, Mark's work with Black Mass, which was an amazing film. Yeah. Um, and I could see echoes of, you know, stuff within Sunflower. Um and, you know, Mark's got a great grasp. He's got this story and he's a great guy to work with as well. We've been chatting here and there. Sunflower is that sort of, I guess, how was it sold to me first? It was sort of a true detective's female taken perspective. Mother and not giving up hope on her daughter that's been potentially murdered, stroke abducted. You know, what's going on type of thing. It's a good story, and I only just put um, worked with Mark to put issue six to bed uh, this week, actually. Oh, nice. So Mark is probably reading through that now, going to be sending back uh, amends to me and everything. And we've got Lee Carter on artwork for that, So um, and Lee's been putting some great pieces together. And yeah, it's a really, really been an enjoyable sort of experience. A little bit different for me. 45 is very superhero. Blue Spear is very superhero. Overrun, a little bit sort of out there. <laughs> a, li a little bit. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. And so this was a little bit more grounded. I say grounded. I mean, there are some sort of, in the same way that True Detectives had that little bit of an edge to it, that little bit of cultness to it. There is that sort of element within Sunflower as well. It feels like a movie. It feels like a TV script. It really does. I don't know if that ever happens, but if it ever gets adapted, I hope you get to work on that because it's it's just a really fun ride. And I felt bad for, you know, Steven and, uh, and James when I spoke to them a couple of months ago. But the whole time, I just wanted to sit there and just talk about Sunflower. But I'm like, nope, let's not do that. Let's not waste our time acting, you know, kind of like a Uber fan, you know? <laughs> I think that's fair enough. I mean, if you're in, really into it. I mean, I've been really um, fortuitous with 451. The guys have been great, Anthony and the team. I've been working on some really cool titles. 
I mean, obviously, Six was uh, another one that I've been working on with George Pelicanos, which was great. It was just like a, um, a modern retelling of The Magnificent Seven, I guess, um, with lots of drug cartel thrown in. And obviously, Ex Mortis, which is your sort of Hammer House of Horror meets The Dirty Dozen. And, and there was some Sunflower as well. So I've been a bit spoiled. And really, with the time difference and everything, it's been it's worked out really well. You know, I, t- I tend to get them stuff quite well. The way that we work across the pond, so to speak, they've really made me feel like part of the family. And I get to work with some great guys like Mark Maluk and George on some great titles. So, um, yeah, Sunflower is, is certainly out there. And I hope, you know, if it ever gets picked up, if anyone's listening, uh, I'd, I'd love to work on the, any TV or film on that. That would be, that'd be awesome. <laughs> I've got, I've got a manager and he's, you know, we're slowly ramping up and building up what's going on with me. It's not just comic work. I do have several IPs that are creator owned that are in various phases of development with um, film companies and stuff. So like anything, they're all conversations that tend to take forever. Hollywood doesn't tend to be a fast thing. But, uh, you know, with a bit of luck and a few more hurdles, I might uh, actually get my name on a credit on a screen somewhere. That would be cool. I look forward to it. But to your credit, though, what I like about your work with 451 and then with Overrun, with each title that I've read that has your name on it, with certain writers, and I don't necessarily mean this to be a bad thing. So, again, I apologize if this sounds like I'm coming off as being negative. But the idea of, you know, when you get like a certain style and that's cool where you can read something, you can tell, okay, this is definitely this person's work. But then, you know, sometimes that can almost work the opposite end where you're like, okay, because of this person, you already sort of know what to expect. But what I've read from, you know, 451 of yours and also Overrun is that no two books really kind of read the same way. Like you found a really good way to hone on a particular voice and a particular tone for each title. So I just have to compliment you on that and say that's something that's really cool because you don't really get a lot of sameness with your work. Well, thank you. I mean, I've been, I suppose I'm lucky that the, the subject matter is very different from one another. That helps. And obviously with things like Sunflower and also Ex Mortis, it's more of a adaptation. Uh, as opposed to origination. Right. So there's, there's probably less of me in it. That sounds negative, but it's not. The thinking process and the way that the panel breakdown is and, and how I structured it, how I've paced it, what I've decided to go in and out from a script, you know, that's all down to me. And some scenes I've added extra things in that I, I, I thought would work and dialogue changes, but ultimately it's on rails that has already been predetermined. So I can't take all the credit on the four, five, one stuff, stuff like six, which is more of a, a working relationship with George. You know, there's a lot more, um, origination work for myself. So I can, I can confidently say that, you know, there's, there's more of my style of writing in that. Right. And obviously overrun is myself with Matt. So yeah, I'd like to think that I try not to go into a formula. There are things that I like doing. I like starting. Sometimes with, especially on issues. I, if you, have you read six at all? I've read the first two. I didn't really get too far into that one yet. The first issue, there's a, probably, a, I would say, not so much a signature, but it's something that I quite like doing, which is I, I like to reveal the end at the beginning of the comic. Um, and then you, you sort of build up and build up towards that scene. And then you, 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 you get a payoff right at the end. And it's something that I do here and there. And it's something that, um, I kind of like. So if there's anything that sort of puts me into a, a particular style, I would say that, that sort of structure is me a little bit. 
And the other thing I do is I occasionally put in the number 45 everywhere, which is down to my first graphic novel. So occasionally you'll see a, a, a character walking around with a 45 on their shirt or a door knock will be a number 45. That will- oh, I did see that novel run, but I don't want to say where, because again, I'm trying not to spoil the book. But uh, I, wow, now that you mentioned that, wow, that's really cool. Yeah, so um, I did actually manage in one of the books to get a character walking around with, with a 45 on his T-shirt, like a hockey shirt, which I thought was really cool. But yeah, it's just my, I, I, I do it occasionally. I just like to hide little things in there where I can. That's what I liked about Overrun is that as far as creator work, I mean, you pretty much just kind of go all in on it. You know, it's very kinetic, which uh, like issue three alone, um, you know, you have a really good way of writing out like the action stuff, which uh, really, really fun stuff. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I try, I try to, I mean, there's a lot in that. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you sort of, Again, I won't try to say too much about sort of ruining it. Yeah, same here. So I'm like, it's hard to talk about it without going into specifics. There's a lot of stuff for the fanboys and, and girls that, you know, really sort of enjoy their moments within computer games. And the way that Overrun works, again, it was a, a conscious choice to try to make it work like a computer game. Everything starts small ramps up, ramps up, ramps up until you get the big boss at the end. Hopefully not giving too much away, but that, that, you know, I, I, I built the structure to work like a computer game. <laughs> you mentioned a warped sense of humor, which is funny. <laughs> and I, I, I mean, this to be complimentary. I interviewed a gentleman, Ed Trichino, uh way back, I want to say mid last year, and he's British as well. And reading a lot of his work, and I realized, I don't know, maybe it's a British thing, but there's just this very interesting style of humor that you don't really get in a lot of American comics. And I don't know, is it a regional thing? But man, you guys are uh, <laughs> tapped into some. <laughs> I think I think a lot of it is, you know, we've got a lot of, you know, there's a lot of good American comedy and, and Canadian comedy. I was brought up on the likes of Blackadder, The Young Ones, that sort of Forty Towers. I love Forty Towers. Sort of level of comedy. And Monty Python, you know, that, that sort of comedy is ingrained in, well, I'd say a, a certain age group. Unfortunately, we're out of that age group now. And, it, you, you know, you get uh, your next wave will probably be into things like Little Britain and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, my, my comedy was, was all around the 80s. Um, and there was a lot of political t- sort of, tension and change at those times as there is within every generation but in particular you know it was quite hard the thatcherite years and everything so yeah i I always like trying to walk and just sometimes putting my foot on the other side of the line being sometimes a little bit too near the knuckle but (laughs) just kind of where i am really with my my level of sense of humor it is quite warped i'll find the weirdest i've got this weirdest sense of humor and I am the office joker as well, which probably reason why I, I, I tend to get sort of, uh, I don't know, pillared with the, the, the jester stick more than, more than <laughs> others. But, um, yeah, that's just me. I didn't necessarily grow up with them maybe as they originally aired, but grew up with a lot of PBS in our house and, you know, British comedies are something that we're kind of always on. And I guess now knowing that it's like, it makes perfect sense as to where the sensibility comes from, because I love the fact that you mentioned English comedies and also Canadian comedies. Cause I almost feel like it's the same way where I don't know, like, I just feel like they do comedy better than most of the Americans do. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say better. It's just different. It's different cultures. A lot of our culture, a lot of our comedy, you know, was stemmed in that back to things like the Goonies um, Spike Milligan and a lot of that humor was sprang out of, I guess, um, sort of the post war era 
we sure at that point probably needs to find a lot to be sort of thankful and, and to find a, a sense of humour somewhere. <laughs> right. For what, what had just probably just gone through. But I guess it was a golden period for, for, for comedy. You know, a lot of BBC comedy was, was sort of breaking out back in the well, 50s and 60s. Um, I, I guess you guys had something probably like Lucille Ball and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I, that's kind of usually where a lot of our comedy is still very much rooted in like those the early days of television and such. I mean, to this day, like a lot of comedy still sort of take their cues from like things like The Honeymooners and I Love Lucy. So I, we're very rooted yeah. in the past. <laughs> yeah, but the, the saying that, I remember sort of being, I don't know, it must have been about eight or nine and Lauren Hardy used to be on all the time on BBC Two. We used to have three channels. That was it. BBC One, BBC Two, ITV, before Channel Four came along. Uh, and we were spoiled. And it was like, whoa, what's this? Four channels? <laughs> I remember watching pretty much after the Rockford Files. Uh, so this is showing my age. Um, bear in mind, we used to get TV from America sort of like two years after you guys had it. I used to watch Lauren Hardy all the time. Um, used to love all of that. That, that, that comedy, especially the piano sequence down the stairs. Oh, well, that's a uh, classic. <laughs> uh, that, was, that was awesome. I, I guess from all of that, I used to just, I just enjoyed comedy, slapstick, and and all of that, and timing. And I guess that never really went away, especially for writing. I still enjoy writing comedy as well. I may not be the world's greatest at writing comedy. I haven't got anything comedic published, but um, I certainly got stuff that's in the pipelines that I'll one day find a home for. That's one thing, though, I love about British humor, that it's very, I don't want to say deadpan, but, it's, you know, it's very dry, it's very subtle, and even in the case of your more outlandish comedy, of course, everybody knows Monty Python, while even the wackiest sketches are still done in a way where it's just so subtly brilliant, where it's like, you know, you never would have thought to do that. Yeah, yeah, that, that you know, all of that, I guess it was something new for us when Monty Python came out. I mean, everything would have been very sort of even drier than that. I think the Goonies potentially just before that would go a little bit more surreal. And I think Monty Python came from that, that sort of surreal nature. And then from Monty Python, you had things like Hugh and Laurie. Uh, ben Elton then follows up on that. And a lot of my humour sort of came from that Ben Elton generation. Yeah, it was um, good times. It's it's different now, it, you know. You get things like Father Ted. I don't know if you guys ever caught Father Ted. Um, I heard of it, but I personally haven't seen any of it. Yeah, Father Ted's a really cool one, um, and also the IT crowd. I do what I call like a annual IT crowd binge because it's on Netflix right now. So right. I pretty much go through all four series of that like really quickly. And matter of fact, uh, me and a mutual follower were basically going back with the IT crowd references. And I think of the modern comedies, that one is probably one of my favorites. And I think that's arguably one of the best. I can't get enough of it. Yeah, it, it is awesome. I mean, I absolutely love that series, and it has me in stitches every time I see it. Right. And also another one which we recently got into, there's me saying, lamenting the fact that there's no modern um, comedy anymore, and of course forgetting some of the some of these ones. Um, things like Car Share. I don't know if you've got Peter Kay's Car Share yet. That one doesn't sound too familiar. Do check it out. Again, it's really English humour, but um, it's basically a car journey two people going to work in a supermarket and one's the boss and he's, they've got a car share policy. So he has to pick up this member of staff. Um, and they, it's just their journey to work. And then the, the second half of the show is the journey home from work. And it's just their conversation. It's very dry. 
but it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And the comedy is, is, you kind of get it. It's not very visual, but you have to listen to the conversations and the mannerism to, to really sort of, sort of appreciate it. That's what I love about British comedy. Like I said, you get your more outlandish shows, but yeah, it's the art of conversation and wordplay. If you're good at that, then you pretty much win in my book. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. I mean, slapstick is, you know, it has its place, but I think personally, it kind of wears on me a little bit. Yeah, I, I can see that. I think you can get a bigger laugh from a conversation and a look than necessarily getting hit in the face with something. So something I've been asking a lot today, uh, I love how it always goes back to IT crowd this week, but what would you say is your favorite episode? Oh, there's so many. Um, I really like The Haunting of Bill Grouse, but I also <laughs> really like... No, The Office Outing. Is it The Office Outing when they go... Yeah, <laughs> when they go to see the uh, the musical. Yeah, that that just has me in stitches, absolutely. Especially when uh, that Moss is behind the bar as the barman. That that uh, just has me in, in floods of tears. When I first saw that, I just couldn't get enough of it. It was just like... <laughs> it was brilliant. And... You know, in the same way that I say that the humour can sometimes hit that line of being the right side of tasteful. Right. You know, there, there's some very sort of near the knuckle subjects that, you know, it isn't patronising and it isn't mocking in a way to make it offensive. Yeah, because, I mean, the bulk of that episode, for anyone who hasn't seen it, I don't think it's really spoilers. It's been out forever. But, you know, they go to a musical and it turns out it's basically about homosexuality and I guess it's a very kind of boisterous play and on top of that you know they're making you know not necessarily making jokes towards them but jokes about I, I guess uh people who are disabled because you know he ends up using a restroom that's meant for disabled yeah. customers and <laughs> he basically in order to keep from getting in trouble he pretends that like his wheelchair is stolen yeah yeah exactly um, oh. but it, it's the fact that he gave the description of a guy wearing glasses who's ginger and has a beard and then the police go <laughs> <laughs> the next scene there's a, a, an innocent bystander who happens to match that description and the police said excuse me sir can we have a word of you for him <laughs> <laughs> oh and then I, one of my favorite gags from that episode is when uh... <laughs> I'm sorry I gotta stop laughing <laughs> when he's in a wheelchair and he's being lifted up into the uh the bus yeah and then like the guy comes out and it's like they heard the the cast heard about what happened they all want to have you you know come back and meet them and then it's just that shot of him being lowered <laughs> very slowly <laughs> oh, yeah it, I, I think i think the joke isn't you know it, the joke is on us more than anything and on the, those guys you know trying to just putting themselves into the worst situation ever and then just failing and getting worse and getting deeper and deeper in 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 the lie that they've just weaved. Right. But yeah, if you guys ever get a chance, uh, anyone listening, do catch up with the IT crowd. Um, and it's yeah, it's, I think it's called the Office Outing, isn't it? Moss and the German is I think one of my recent favorites. Yeah, yeah, that is, that is good. Oh, there's just so many. I just love the fact that it's something when I first watched it, like I said, it was on Netflix. I didn't think anyone really, at least over here, would have really you know picked up on it, but suffice to say like it's not you know huge by any means but it's got a nice little fan base and yeah. even now i'm still running it to people who are uh, just now getting into it and i'm like oh this is so good oh man the funeral the funeral with the with the uh he, he pimps the the mobile phone oh yeah heart attack. <laughs> oh and he starts having like the freak out while it's going yeah, on that that had me in stitches she goes oh i'm dying 
I'm dying. Oh no, no, it's just my phone. <laughs> it's in the middle of this eulogy. <laughs> but uh, talking about subtle jokes, I do love though um the portrait of uh of uh, Rhythm where he's just at one point he's smiling and then at, and then all of a sudden the portrait changes to like he's frowning. Yeah, exactly. Like right in the middle of the funeral. Yeah. Like I that's another just great gag that I, I just love. And and Matt Berry as well, if you've ever you know when the next series comes on and it's his son, I think, that comes uh, Matt Berry is a great um, comedian over here, and he's done something called Toast of London. If you ever get a chance, try and catch Toast of London. They've done three series of it, but it's like a failed actor trying to get gigs. Um, the first two series was absolutely laugh-out-loud funny um, and certainly worth uh, if you're into the IT crowd, um, you'll 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 really dig Matt. I'm already sold. Like I just wrote that down because they said um, this is why I I love hanging out with uh, people in the UK because I'm like I don't know if it's that easy for me to obtain it, but at the same time I'm like anything you can clue me in on, feel free because I, I eat this stuff up. Yeah, that is cool. Yeah, so Toast of London certainly um, and Car Share if you get a chance. They're my two recommendations. Oh, man. Andy, thank you so much, man. This has been so much fun. Like, I, I'm so glad that we're able to sit and chat. No, no, it's been a pleasure, my friend. But before we go, if there's anything you, you would mind sharing, like any, like I said, your social networking or any other projects you can tease in the pipeline? Um, well, there is a, the potential. Uh, as I said, I'm into my game books. So I'm potentially going to be maybe kickstarting a Freeway Fighter comic. Um, if you're. Do you remember all the Death Trap Dungeons, Choose Your Own Adventure type game books? Yes. That's done by Ian Livingston. So Ian's a friend of mine, and I've drafted up a one-shot for both Death Trap Dungeon and Freeway Fighter. So I may be, maybe, it's all down to money at the end of the day, maybe kickstart in that middle of the year or something. Oh, very cool. If that does happen, uh, I will let you know. But yeah, that would be pretty cool, uh, especially Freeway Fighter. If you're into Mad Max... Freeway Fighter was his version of that, really. And then hopefully after that, Death Trap Dungeon. And I'm on Twitter, if if anybody wants to follow me. Uh, Andy, A-N-D-I, Ewington, E-W-I-N-G-T-O-M. Obviously, there's an at in there somewhere as well. <laughs> Quick shout out, by the way, a guy I've had on a show before, Rick Kelly. He is a developer of Underbite Studios, and you mentioned Choose Your Own Adventure, but he has this really cool game that's out for, I think it's, you know, for mobile and, you know, tablets and things like that. But it is called Heroes Guard the Journal. All right. It's a text based RPG. Then, you know, it has very much stats, but it's basically choose your own adventure. So depending on, you know, it, the scenario in the story, it changes how your attributes work out. So it's okay. like, okay, you're, you know, an adventurer in the woods, you get ambushed by archers, and there's, you know, usually about two choices of what you can do. So you can maybe go ahead and like, you know, do an all out attack, which maybe would increase your strength. Or you can maybe do something a little bit more tactful. And what's really cool about it is it's less of a beginning and end kind of scenario. Because, you know, with Choose Your Own Adventure, it seemed like everything you did, you ended up being killed. Yeah. <laughs> but here, it's just more of a scenario where it just changes how your character develops. And there's also a really cool uh, card game. So I'm not sure. I think it's on Google Play and iOS. But um, he's okay. been working on that one. Um, it's through Underbite Studios. Yeah, I got it. I got it here. So I will have a look at that a little bit later. Thank you for that. No problem. Because it's like, as soon as you said that, I'm like, oh, you know what? You'd probably really enjoy this. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm always f- up for for any RPG stuff. So um, as my poor wife will bear testament to, I t- I've actually just bought Munchkin. Munchkin is addictive. My best friend, we always play that when we hang out at his house, and I don't know how anything gets done when you play that. <laughs> yeah, so um, I'm going to introduce it to my to my little and see if he digs it. I've got exploding kittens, but I think he's a bit young for that. Yeah, I, th- I think Munchkins is age appropriate. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'll, I'll double check. But yeah, he he loves all of it. As soon as I get any of the board game stuff, like my Dark Future or um, my Battle Cars, he's always like, "Oh, can we have a look at your Battle Tech or your Blood Bowl?" I'm getting him into Talisman at the moment as well. He loves that. Well, I think Munchkin, what's cool about them is that there's a bunch of different versions of that. Like, I know that there's like Adventure Time and there's a couple of properties that are maybe a little bit more kid friendly. Don't worry. He won't get playing it if it's not age appropriate. So that said, I did actually manage to take him to see um, Force Awakens, which he loved. So um, that was my my one moment where I sort of said, I'm going to bend the rules for this one. Because (laughs) I remember being taken to see Star Wars for the first time and I kind of want to have that moment with him. Um, And this was it. And he loved it. And um, I thought it was brilliant. Most of my Star Wars viewing was done on VHS, but still, I just remember being sat down and my dad basically was like, here, sit down and watch this movie and just being like, all right, well, whatever. But next thing you know, it's just like, oh my gosh, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah, it, it's, it is brilliant. I mean, Zach was the same. He had to sit and watch. I actually made him sit and watch the prequels so that it was done and it never got talked about again, but the prequels have been watched. And then we went straight into four, five, six. And, um, he absolutely loved it. And then I got to take him to seven pretty much the week, weekend after, which he was just like blown away. And, and now it's all, I think we've got, we've got this like trading tops type game, uh, force attacks. So I'm, I'm buying packs of collectible card trading cards for him at the moment for um, force awakens. So, um, yeah, he's, he's, he's been sucked in. Hook him while they're young. So good job. Good parenting. Parenting done right. I got, I got that comics and Dungeons and Dragons I've already bought a starter set for basic D&D so the kid's got no chance <laughs> like he is doomed his he- fate has already been determined <laughs> oh that is awesome but again Andy thanks for taking the time out and chatting this has been a lot of fun I appreciate it uh, it's been a pleasure thank you this will do it for us for Adrian Has Issues and we will see you next issue take care guys i'm adrian and i'm his issues wait what hey guys i'm adrian and i'm wait wait that's not right hey guys i'm adrian and i'm eileen tune in to the adrian has issues podcast each week we chat with some great people including me from time to time comic book creators comedians musicians and actors tax collectors zamboni drivers Point is, basically anyone willing to sit down for a geeky discussion or two on all things pop culture. Visit AdrianHasIssues.com where you can download and stream every episode. Especially the ones featuring yours truly. Visit Adrian Has Issues on Facebook and Twitter. And subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. 
please leave a rating and review and tell me how amazing I am. Us. I mean us. Ah, I'm kidding. You're way cooler than I am anyway. Aw, thanks, babe. Oh, and Adrian Has Issues is also a proud member of the Tangent Bound Podcast Network. Awesome. Nice save, Brodor. <sighs> Visit AdrianHasIssues.com. <laughs>